Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we come together on Sundays and Wednesdays in order to learn the teachings of the Buddha. We're using this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And on Sundays, we do a talk on each individual chapter. This Sunday, we're going to be on chapter 23, which is all about the symbolism in the teachings of the Buddha and how these different symbols represent the teachings that he actually shared during his lifetime. So this will be really helpful when you're looking at artwork or you visit temples, you're looking at architecture, things like this. And then on Wednesdays, we come together in order to support, encourage, and motivate each other in our meditation practice by doing either breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation. Now, at the beginning of this program, which started almost seven months ago, I did a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation to ensure that everybody understood how to do breathing mindfulness meditation and really soaking into it and building up people from the beginning. And then after that, I did a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation, doing the same thing, building people up from the very beginning. And then I did a four-part series on Buddhist chanting and helping people to build up their chanting practice. Now that we're ending our group learning program here in a few weeks, we're just kind of rotating between breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation every other week. But starting at the beginning of the group learning program, which will be in April, we're gonna start off with that four part series of breathing mindfulness meditation and really diving in deep to kind of ramp up people who are maybe just joining us for the first time at that point or people that have joined us since I taught those classes. We'll be doing those four part series on breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and Buddhist chanting. But what I thought I would do since we're coming to the close of this group learning program and we have had people join us since we've began this program and there's people that have been learning all the way through with us, I thought what I would do is kind of finish off the group learning program with the next couple of sessions reviewing and going into depth with breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. Not necessarily to the level of detail that I do when I do those four-part series, but at least enough to refresh the memory of people that learned back at the beginning of this program, now that the program's kind of coming to a close. And then anybody who's joined us in the last few weeks or last few months, this will be the first time that you've really heard me go into a lot of depth and detail about these two styles of meditation so that you can start building up your practice. And then if your plan is to continue with the group learning program when we restart in April, you'll be able to participate in those four part series of breathing mindfulness, loving kindness, and Buddhist chanting. So I just thought I would let you know that's the plan for next week is to go through breathing mindfulness meditation more in depth 
and really refresh people's memory and kind of get people moving in the direction of building up their practice if you haven't heard me teach breathing mindfulness meditation in more depth. And then we'll do the same thing two weeks from now with loving kindness meditation. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our Wednesday meditation. The way that we do this is I usually guide you guys in a meditation for a period of time. And then afterwards, we open up to any questions that you might have related to either meditation or any other aspect of this path to enlightenment that you would like to get help on, whether it's something that you've come across in this volume of the book, volume one, which is what we use for the group learning program, or any of the other volumes or other videos or podcasts or any other teachings that I share, you're welcome to ask questions, things that you're challenged with, things that you need help with. You have this ability to ask any and all questions each Wednesday, and as well as all the other classes that I teach too, you're always welcome to ask any questions that you like. But those Saturday and Sunday classes are usually geared more towards a specific topic, where Wednesday it's kind of like free-form questions about anything that is going on in your practice that you would like help with. So before we start loving kindness meditation, I thought I would just pause for a moment and see if there's anybody that has any questions related to loving kindness meditation before we actually go into meditation. So you'll be able to get more benefit out of the meditation itself. And then of course, we'll open up at the end for any and all questions as well. But if you have any questions specific to loving kindness meditation, this would be a good time to ask those. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. I'm not sure. Seems that Miranda has a question. That's good to hear. Yes, sir. If there's been um, a long period of like negative self-talk, those types of things, for a person, would it be wise for them to, towards the beginning of learning how to practice loving kindness meditation, devote a couple of sessions just to, may this being be well, may this being be peaceful, to grow loving kindness for their own being? Yes, that's very wise that, you know, this is where there's a lot of flexibility in loving kindness meditation because you're going to structure your rings based on what the mind needs. And in order to have loving kindness for others, you need to have cultivated loving kindness for yourself or this being that you are now. And it might be a few sessions. It might be a few weeks. It might even be a few months where all you do is just repeat over and over and over as your rings. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I be well. May I be free of discontentedness. And then again and again and again. And maybe five, six, eight of the rings are just directed towards this being. And then maybe your last ring is. May all beings be peaceful, safe, well, and free of discontentedness. And you might need to do that for not only multiple sessions, but maybe weeks or even months before you really are cultivating that in the mind really, really well. And then once you feel like you're doing that and you've accomplished that pretty well, then you can move into adding additional rings of people who you already have loving kindness for, that you would like to continue to cultivate that and support that, encourage that, allow it to grow. 
maybe people who you're more neutral with, maybe people like coworkers and things like that, because you'd like to kind of build up your loving kindness with them. And then maybe like kind of another layer is like people who you find it very difficult right now to cultivate loving kindness for. Maybe there's anger or ill will or resentment towards certain people. And these are like really difficult cases for you. Maybe you put those kind of on the outer edges because as you go through cultivating loving kindness for these other beings and you get the feelings of loving kindness cultivating in the mind and the mental state is permeating more, it'll be easier for that to overflow into these rings of people that you find it much more challenging for. So if you put those people closer in, sometimes it's a lot harder in your meditation. Whereas if you work with the people that you find it very easy to have loving kindness for, that kind of gets the loving kindness permeating and cultivating in the mind and then it can kind of overflow into the more difficult and challenging people but yeah you can do what you're describing is just focus on you but then you would like to get at least one ring where it's all beings at the very end okay thank you sir you're welcome well marcy has her hand raised let's go here so my question is is we do the breathing meditation three times a day or at least that's the goal for 30 minutes loving kindness is that in addition and if it is an addition for what have you uh, learned is the most beneficial in frequency for the loving kindness meditation yeah so it should be two to three meditation sessions per day not necessarily exclusively breathing mindfulness but two to three meditation sessions per day up to 30 minutes or more that would be ideal that's where you're going to see the most benefit and some people start out with just one session five minutes a day and that's just where they're at in their life but then they kind of slowly expand it from there but it's two to three sessions and then out of those two to three sessions i would suggest that at least one of them is the way that we do loving kindness in this class where you start with a little bit of breathing mindfulness then you go into loving kindness and then you probably will finish up with some breathing mindfulness at the end. So you do at least one of those two to three being loving kindness meditation. But there's no harm in you doing that more. This is just kind of general guidance and then everybody kind of customizes it on their own. If you have some people that you feel that there's a lot of hatred in the mind towards, this might be something that is kind of like your go-to meditation that you're doing a good quality breathing mindfulness meditation, a really good quality loving kindness, and then some more really good quality breathing mindfulness meditation. And that might be what you do every single session out of two or three until you start seeing that the hatred and anger and ill will or resentment starts to kind of subside. And then you kind of can shift that around where maybe you're doing an exclusively breathing mindfulness and then another one with breathing mindfulness in loving kindness. And then maybe your third one is either loving kindness or just breathing mindfulness, up to you how you do that. But at least one of them early on should be loving kindness meditation because there's going to be some degree of anger, hatred, ill will in the mind or those lesser versions like frustration and irritation and annoyance and things like this. And you'd really like to kind of get ahead of that with your cultivation of loving kindness and meditation. And then at the same time, you're bringing in the eightfold path where you're practicing right intention right speech and right action and you start moving this loving kindness that you're generating in meditation into your daily life through your intention speech and actions and then when you see that those things are, are moving ahead 
pretty well, then, you know, if you've been doing loving kindness two or three sessions a day, then maybe you bring that down to one and just keep it going that way. But then you always know you can bring it back up too. Because what the mind wants to do is it wants to have this kind of set, rigid schedule of exactly when I'm meditating, what meditation am I doing, how long am I doing it for. It wants this pre-prescribed, permanent schedule. But what we come to realize is that's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So by keeping our meditation practice fluid, and what we can do is we can practice mindfulness, awareness of mind, observing the quality of the mind and what's going on in the mind, and where you're observing that there's a good amount of anger, hatred, ill will, or those lesser versions, that's where you bring in a lot more loving kindness. And you might need to do that for an extended period of time. And then as that starts to subside and diminish, then maybe you kind of go back down to one. But then if you notice at some point in your life that the anger is arising, then you go back to loving kindness and ramp that up and make that a really important part of your meditation practice. So allowing your practice to be fluid like this, allowing your practice to be impermanent and basing it on the present moment, because the present moment is what you're going to understand with mindfulness, with awareness of mind. You can see what's going on in the present moment. And that's where you then address whatever needs to be addressed. And this loving kindness meditation is just like one more tool in your tool belt and you pull out that tool whenever you need it. And it's important to understand the gradual training aspect of all of this, because sometimes maybe we have an argument with somebody in our life and we're like, okay, I need to do loving kindness meditation. And we do it for one day, the anger subsides, and then we don't do it anymore. And this isn't how the mind is transformed. There has to be this gradual improvement. So if you see anger arise in the mind, I would say, you know, two to three or four weeks of sessions of loving kindness rather than just like one or two sessions. It's much like a like a medication. If we're going to take a medication, there's going to be like a whole course of medication. There's maybe like a 10 day course or a 20 day course of medication, even though the symptoms might have subsided after two or three days. You have to continue that medication to kind of really stamp out that virus or stamp out that bacteria. And it's the same thing as even if you have this inflamed anger on one particular day, rather than just doing loving kindness on one or two days, you would like to extend that over multiple weeks to really stamp out this anger and make sure that it's really, really gone. The Buddha calls this obliterating it at the stump. He talks about destroying the fetter of ill will and these other fetters as well. Obliterating it is what he talks about. Because if we just did loving kindness once, when we have that arising anger or twice, then that anger is still there and it's just going to arise at some point in the future. But if we can stamp it out, if we can destroy it, if we can obliterate it by two, three, four weeks of loving kindness meditation in a particular situation where we've seen it arise, then we're really stamping it out and ensuring that it's not subject to future arising. These are the words that the Buddha uses, is by obliterating it and destroying it, you ensure that it's not subject to future arising. And then wherever you see it, if it does arise, then you ramp your meditation back up again. But I would say for a good year, two or three even, a practitioner is going to need to have at least one session a day 
of loving kindness meditation to really stamp out the anger, hatred, ill will, and the lesser versions. And then wherever they see anger arise, then increase that to more sessions per day, but still within that two to three sessions per day. Well, on YouTube, Luke writes, is love and kindness meditation a good way to deal with resentment towards someone? Yes, loving kindness meditation. You'll hear this in two weeks when I kind of uh, refresh everybody's memory of what I taught in that four-part series is that loving kindness is what actually transforms the mind away from anger, hatred, ill will, resentment, hostility, aggression, and those lesser versions of like frustration, irritation, annoyance. This is what does that. And including what Miranda was asking about, about even negative self-talk, because a lot of times we have that negative self-talk when we get on this path, especially because of things that we did in the past. And now we're starting to learn all these wholesome teachings and we're like, oh my goodness, all those people that I treated so horribly in my life, it was all coming from my own mind. Um, sure, they might have been doing some things that were harmful, but you start come to realize how you've been causing all of this harm in your life and you can feel a bit negative towards yourself or a bit pessimistic. So yes absolutely luke you know negative self-talk towards yourself resentment towards others resentment towards yourself anger hatred ill will irritation annoyance all of these kind of destructive feelings that come into the mind as part of that second poison that we talk about in chapter eight there's that second poison there that the mind has in practicing loving kindness meditation is what cultivates loving kindness in the mind but then we need to practice it in daily life, not the meditation necessarily, but yes, the meditation in daily life, we practice it, but then you move that cultivated loving kindness that you cultivated in meditation into your daily life through your intention, speech, and actions. That if we only did loving kindness meditation and then we went outside and talked hostile and aggressive to people, we wouldn't be cleaning up our unwholesome decisions because we're still functioning through this unwholesome route of anger, hatred, ill will, being hostile and aggressive to people. So we cultivate this loving kindness and meditation, almost like filling up the gas tank. And then when you go outside and you're interacting with people on the phone or through email, through text, through wherever you're interacting with them, your intention, speech, and actions should be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in all situations. And the Buddha gives us guidance on that in the Eightfold Path, related to right intention, right speech, and right action. He helps us to see how we can practice in such a way through our intention, speech, and actions that are wholesome and that emanate from loving kindness. And I kind of summarize that as polite, kind, friendly, and respectful intention, speech, and actions. Thank you, Sitcher. No more questions for now. All right. So let's go ahead and do loving kindness meditation. I'll start out with breathing mindfulness meditation first, just to kind of get us started and kind of lead into that. Of course, with some chanting, going into breathing mindfulness meditation. Then I'll do some guidance with loving kindness meditation where on the out breath, you repeat the affirmation that I say out loud. You repeat it in the mind on the out breath. And then we'll do that for a period of time. And then at some point, we'll go back to breathing mindfulness and then finish up with chanting and then see if there's any questions that you guys might have at the end of class. 
So go ahead and take a position, either seated, standing, or lying. These are the three positions that we typically do loving kindness meditation in. Making the lower body comfortable. The hands and arms should be comfortable in the lap. And then the upper body should be nice and erect. And now just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. You're welcome to join me with the chanting if you're familiar with those. Otherwise, I'll be back with some guidance after the chanting. of your breath is going to be based on you so your breath might not sync up to the guidance that I'm providing but at the next in breath wherever that is breathe in naturally through the nose experiencing the full breath and 
and then wherever you're ready, an exhale through the nose, just gradually exhaling, experiencing the full breath. Breathing in. In, out. Here you're just establishing the breath. Just breathing in gradually through the nose. And exhaling through the nose. Start to bring the focus of the mind to the breath. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in and out. With the mind fixated on the breath, wherever you notice that the mind has moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. When the mind is moved off the breath, having thoughts or ideas, looking at the past or the future. You haven't done anything wrong. No need to feel guilty, shameful. This is just the mind wandering, not being interested to be in the present moment. You don't need to label the thoughts, judge them, or try to figure out where they're coming from. Just wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm gonna let you do this work now, then I'll be back later to guide you in loving kindness meditation. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath. This is your time. Breathing in. In, out. 
Continuing to focus on the breath. Breathing in through the nose. And out through the nose. Wherever you get to the next out breath, repeat these affirmations in the mind. May I be peaceful. I be safe. free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May all those in Asia be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Australia be peaceful. May they be safe.
may they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. in Europe be peaceful. May they be safe. free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Africa be peaceful. May they be safe. free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes.
May all those in North America be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be free of all discontentedness in the suffering it causes. South America be peaceful. May they be safe. be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. peaceful. May they be safe.
May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. May all beings, no matter where they reside, be peaceful. May they be safe. May they be well. May they be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. Go back to breathing mindfulness meditation, focusing on the breath. Wherever you notice the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment.
just slowly but surely as you guys make your way out of meditation I'll just remind you of a few things related to loving-kindness meditation is remember that all these meditations it's actually for your own mind you're not actually trying to will loving-kindness into the world and you're not trying to change other people through your meditation you're actually changing your mind improving the condition of your mind so here in loving kindness meditation what we did today with the different continents this would be really good for somebody who's maybe having challenges with certain cultures or certain people or certain countries that are in the world that maybe you have anger hatred ill will resentment hostility aggression towards and if there's certain countries or certain people in the world 
that are kind of large groups, maybe a particular country or group that's causing a lot of challenges in the world, then if you're having some hostility towards that group of people, this would be a meditation to improve your mind. But your meditation isn't going to improve the mind of other people. So it's not like you're trying to will loving kindness into the world. You're instead transforming your anger, hatred, ill will, resentment, hostility, aggression, frustration, irritation, annoyance into this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful. That's what loving kindness is. So it's important to keep that in mind that sometimes you'll see people might request you to do loving kindness meditation for them. And it's not possible for you to help them through your loving kindness meditation. The help that other people are going to receive through your meditation is that by you transforming your mind and now your intentions, speech and actions are emanating from loving kindness. As you interact in the world, you're not going to be causing as much harm. And eventually when you get to the point where all anger, hatred, ill will is eliminated from the mind, you'll only be practicing loving kindness. So you're not causing harm in the world. That's how other people get the benefit of your meditation. But it's all for your mind. It's not for other people. We can't will things to come into the world. We can't meditate for others to be peaceful. We can't meditate for others to have loving kindness. We can't meditate for others to have compassion. We can't meditate for others to stop fighting and killing and arguing and things like this. We can only improve the condition of our mind through our own meditation. Each individual practitioner has to make the choice to walk towards the light, to walk towards enlightenment. It's an individual choice of all of us to either walk towards the light or walk towards the darkness. Which direction we walk is up to us, but our choices affect us. And then, of course, through our intention, speech, and actions, when we're causing less harm in the world, then that's our benefit that other people get to experience as a result of us improving our life practice. So I'll turn things over to all of you guys for any questions that you have, whether it's loving kindness meditation or any other aspect of this path or even any kind of personal challenges that you might be facing in terms of your practice on the path to enlightenment. The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and your question can get asked and answered during the class. Well, so as for you, uh, what you have just shared, teacher, uh, doesn't uh, loving kindness meditation send a kind of energy to help others to improve their minds through our meditation? No, that's not possible. When you're doing loving kindness meditation, it's 100% for your own mind. And then when you start interacting in the world through your intention, speech, and actions emanating through loving kindness, this is where the world benefits from your meditation, but we can't send loving kindness to other people. It's not possible through our meditation. If that was possible, there would be no such thing as anybody ever being in prison. There wouldn't be any murders. There wouldn't be any rapes. There wouldn't be any animal abuse because we'd all be able to just sit down and beam some loving kindness to other people. And then everybody in the world would be peaceful and loving and kind. But we can't do that. Each individual being has to choose to learn, reflect, and practice and transform their mind, eliminating the pollution of the mind. 
Well, on YouTube, a question from Tricia. I think you have partially uh, answered uh, this question. With all that's going on in the world, how does loving kindness meditation help the mind and how does it help others? Yeah, that's pretty much been answered there, Tricia. She probably typed that in before our conversation. But what it does is it transforms your mind. So loving kindness meditation is all about transforming away from anger, hatred, ill will. Because remember, the three high-level problems that are in the mind of the unenlightened being is craving, anger, and ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. And this is what motivates all unskillful conduct, all unskillful decisions, all unwholesome decisions are going to emanate from one's own craving, their mental longing and strong eagerness, the selfish desires, the anger, which is that hostility and aggression, and then this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, this misunderstanding, misperceptions of the way the world functions and the way it works. These natural laws of existence are unknown. By having craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, it's going to make unwholesome decisions and thus experience unwholesome results. As you put those unwholesome decisions in the world, they're going to come back to you. But then what we're doing through this whole path to enlightenment is we're transforming each one of those into the wholesome roots. So we're moving away from the unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance and towards the wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So through generosity, we eliminate that craving, that desire, that yearning, those selfish desires. We now practice selflessness and letting go. And then instead of hostility and aggression towards others and other beings, we're practicing this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. First cultivating it in our meditation, but then through our intention, speech, and actions, we're practicing loving kindness where we have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then the reason why we're able to do this is because we're transforming our ignorance of what the real problem is in the world which is our own mind and that which we actually have direct ability to influence and to correct we're transforming that ignorance into wisdom by learning reflecting and practicing independently verifying the truth for ourselves with guidance from a teacher and now that wisdom comes into our practice and now we're making decisions through generosity through loving kindness and through wisdom this is improving the decisions that we're making Thus, we're having wholesome decisions and wholesome things come back to us. And instead of us going out and pursuing selfish desires, having hostility and aggression, instead of having this ignorance and unknowing of true reality, now we're functioning as beings with a higher consciousness, with an enlightened mind where it's completely purified of the unwholesome roots. And now the mind is practicing the three wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. But that can only happen when each being chooses to do it themselves. That's why we can't go out into the world and force others to eliminate hatred because they have to choose to do that themselves. We can have events. We can invite people to come. We can create books and videos and classes and make them available for people to step forward and learn and come to retreats and courses and things like that. But each being has to choose to do that. There's nothing we can do to inject this into others. They have to choose to step forward and do it themselves. Well, as for uh, the love and kindness uh, affirmations, 
You should before that, we, uh, it's better that we repeat these affirmations at the time of breathing out, exhale. So as for today, there were some affirmations that were long, too long. So if the exhale comes to an end, finishes it. So should one stop and breathe in and at the breathing out, continue with this affirmation or one can a, a repeat, continue repeating these affirmations while breathing in. Yeah, just continue on the out breath. And then if you get to the end of your out breath, you can initiate your inhale if you need to. But you can also get used to having that pause, that gap in between, where you don't have to immediately go from an inhale to an exhale, allowing the mind to experience that peacefulness between breaths is really helpful too. So you can continue the affirmation in that gap in between the out breath and the in breath. Well, as for a last uh, class, there were some of the illness that you mentioned. One of them was a personality disorders. So can you, uh, would you kindly shed some light uh, about this uh, one? Yeah, so in our last class on Sunday was chapter 22, where we were talking about mental health and modern day delusion. And I was helping people see how the mental challenges that we experience in the world are 100% real, but the cause that we discuss a lot of times is not the actual true cause. We often think in modern times that there's a defect in the brain or a disorder or something like this and that we need to introduce chemicals in order to change the brain and this is going to somehow solve things like sadness or anorexia or OCD or personality disorders and things like this. So a personality disorder is essentially somewhere a group of people got together and determined how everybody should function and how everybody's personality should be. And then this gets written out into a book and says, okay, this is how someone's personality should be. And then when somebody doesn't conform to that description of what everyone's personality should be, now people in authority say, okay, this person's ill because their personality doesn't match to our definition of what a human personality should be. But this is a group of people's minds craving permanence, expecting that all people should have the exact same personality. This is impossible. It's not possible for everybody to have the exact same personality. We're all individual unique beings. So you would think that people who have PhDs and doctoral degrees and really in these really well-esteemed roles and jobs with amazing amount of credentials, you would think they would understand something like the universal truth of impermanence. But unfortunately, all professions, all people, if they haven't studied and looked at the Buddhist teachings of these natural laws of existence, their mind is also affected by craving anger and ignorance. Even though they may be a well-respected doctor or politician or community leader or anything like this, they're still making decisions through craving anger and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. So even though today we have a medical discipline around mental health disorders and we consider that certain things are a defect in the brain, in reality, these disciplines have been created through 
a group of people or through a person's own craving, anger, and ignorance on knowing a true reality. So if we expect as human population that all people are going to have a similar personality and that all humans should function exactly the same in terms of personality, then that means whoever doesn't conform to that and meet that definition, that criteria, is now deemed as mentally ill and sick. And now let's give them some medicine. But yet this doesn't change. I mean, it changes certain things. It changes the brain chemistry and it changes certain things, but it's not going to change someone's intention, speech, and actions. If somebody, for example, is a murderer and they're murdering other people, the only thing that's going to help that person stop murdering is to eliminate the craving to harm other beings, to practice something like harmlessness and to also eliminate the anger, the hatred, the ill will that's in the mind, and to eliminate the ignorance and understanding how this action of killing others is only harming themselves as well. Uh, So eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance will help this murderer, for example, to now choose to no longer murder. You know, they have certain cravings, they have certain anger, they have certain ignorance that they're not aware of, that they haven't learned about and they haven't worked to eliminate. So therefore they're making the unwholesome decision to murder others. Or someone who rapes, for example, has a certain craving, has certain anger, has certain ignorance, or any other kind of things that might be deemed as a personality disorder in terms of somebody choosing to stay alone more than others, or someone who's doing any kind of other things that people consider like, oh, this is wrong, this shouldn't be happening then if we look at the real detail of what's happening in the mind is it's all coming back to craving anger and ignorance and there's no medication that's going to eliminate craving anger and ignorance from the mind it's not possible so what we're doing in modern technology is we're looking at the brain we're seeing the brain chemistry off and we think that that's the problem so we're providing medication and pharmaceuticals thinking that if we fix the brain chemistry that will improve the person's functioning. But in reality, it's actually backwards, is that the mind is polluted with craving, anger, and ignorance. And because of that, it is affecting the brain chemistry because of this connection between the mind and the brain. So if we just introduce medications and there's not training of the mind to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, the problem's still there. We're just kind of putting a carpet on top of it and kind of putting the dust under the carpet. This is why a lot of people who are on pharmaceutical medications for psychotropics and mental health disorders, they still commit suicide, they still do mass shootings, they still have a lot of depression and anxiety and all the symptoms that they were struggling with that got them on the medications, those symptoms are oftentimes still there just to a lesser degree. They haven't eliminated 100%. The way to eliminate the symptoms 100% is to go to the root cause, the real problem. And the root cause, the real problem isn't the brain chemistry. It's the craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind. And once you fix that, then the brain will start functioning more naturally because the mind's functioning optimally. So now the brain will function optimally. And then the person can come into this enlightened mind, this higher consciousness, where now they understand as an individual that their brain isn't effective. They don't have a disorder. 
they just lacked wisdom and they lacked training. And once they start training the mind, then they start seeing that they're able to make better and better decisions in the world and have better, more wholesome outcomes because now they understand how the mind works and how it functions. Because we're living in this human body and we have all these organs and we have this mind, but we walk around for so many years not even understanding how it works. We don't even understand necessarily that there is this mind and that it's intangible and that it has craving, anger, and ignorance. So we're essentially living in a world that we don't understand. We don't understand this mind. We don't understand how it functions. We don't understand that it's polluted. We don't understand these natural laws like the universal truth of impermanence. We don't understand things like the Four Noble Truths. We don't understand all these good, wholesome teachings that the Buddha taught us, just like we didn't understand the natural law of gravity when we first were born. And for the first kind of six, 10, 12, 14 years of our life, we didn't really understand this natural law of gravity. And then even when we started to understand it, we couldn't really function with this natural law. We kept falling off of our bike. We kept tripping over our shoes. Our shoes were untied. We kept banging our elbows and our knees. Even when we started understanding this natural law, we were still making decisions that weren't very wise and we had struggles and difficulties with this natural law. But somewhere around 14, 16, 18 years old, we started to really deeply understand this natural law. And we started to be able to roam around the world more peacefully with this understanding of this natural law. So for all these years, we've been roaming and wondering in this life and in previous lives, not understanding these natural laws of existence and how craving anger and ignorance has plagued our mind. And now that you start to understand those and independently verify them through your own practice, now you start making wiser decisions. But it's a gradual process. Just like we gradually learned about the natural law of gravity, we gradually learn about the natural laws of existence. And that's why it takes time for us to learn and practice and improve the condition of our mind just like it took us time to figure out the natural law of gravity. This is how you know, not only just looking in the source teachings of the Buddha where he says enlightenment was gradual, but you know that the Buddha didn't just sit under a tree and instantly attain enlightenment. He did it gradually over time through gradually gaining wisdom. And that's what all of us need to do. And then when we do that, we have the tendency with that wisdom to now make wiser and wiser decisions and when we see the truth for ourselves, that our life and the condition of our mind gradually improves, then we know, ah, this is the truth. I'm on the right path because you can see the benefits right now today. So when we continue to stay in this ignorance and unknowing of true reality around mental health, thinking that it's a chemical imbalance and the brain's defective and we introduce chemicals, then we're not solving the real problem. There are certain problems that do need medicine. You know, when you're in psychosis, if anybody's ever experienced psychosis, there's no amount of talking about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and meditation that's going to get you out of that psychosis. There's just no way. You need medication in order to bring the mind and the brain back to some kind of function uh, where you're not having all these problems. And then once you kind of stabilize on the medication, that's where you bring in the three universal truths and the four noble truths and the meditation and the eightfold path. But if all of us would have grown up with these teachings like they do here in Thailand, we wouldn't have ever gotten to the point where our mind has deteriorated enough 
to experience that psychosis. The reason why our mind kind of goes and gets unraveled like that and we experience things like psychosis and hallucinations and all these other symptoms that we're classifying as mental illness is because we didn't grow up with these natural laws of existence. Here in Thailand, they don't have those same mental health problems that we see in many parts of the rest of the world because they grew up with these teachings, understanding that they have to gain control of their mind. They have to train their mind. They're responsible for their feelings. They understand this natural law of gamma. They grew up with it. So they've been versed in it for 800 to 1200 years. You know, the country of America has not even existed for 250 years yet. So here in Thailand, these teachings have been here for 800 to 1200 years, deeply soaked into the culture. So the people here, you don't see this massive amount of psychotropic medications because people grow up with these teachings. And then also what you don't see is you don't see people trying to dictate what other people should and shouldn't be doing. You don't see like this going to your question, Bossom. You don't see this kind of predefined personality that everybody's supposed to conform to. And now we use that to measure everybody. And we say, if you don't conform to this, you're defective. You have a brain disorder. Uh, instead, everybody here in Thailand understands, or not everybody, but a large majority of the population understands that everybody's unique. Everybody's different. Everybody's on their own journey. And it's not up to me to try to force my neighbor to be a certain way. Instead, everybody just gives everybody space to be their own person and do their own thing. And we all are looking to practice harmlessness and not cause harm to others. And these medical conditions that are really just describing some symptoms, all of these symptoms in the mental health field that we look at today, a lot of them that I've investigated at least, can be remedied through what we can practice in the Buddhist teachings. You know, things like OCD, ADHD, ADD, bipolar, depression, suicidal thoughts, germophobia or any kind of phobias, all these kind of things that are really more internal to the way the mind has feelings, hoarding, things like this. There's all these kind of things that were, have been led to think that are medical problems and sicknesses and illnesses. And I feel that anybody who's in that field currently, they're not sharing this information for malicious reasons or because they're trying to deceive people. The people who are in the mental health field, they truly feel and they truly believe that what they're offering is actually helping people. In certain situations, there is some help that those people are providing. But if those people who are interested in mental health start understanding the Buddhist teachings and they start practicing themselves, they will actually be able to help those patients so much better than just purely offering medications as a solution. Because while medications might be needed in certain situations, there's a lot of cases that can be resolved through training the mind that we just have so many untrained minds walking around in the world. And once we train our mind, we can evolve as a species and evolve to this higher consciousness where now we're all functioning very differently with each other. When in this uh, personality disorders, you mentioned that some people uh, 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 try or have craving to conform to other people's expectations. 
how can one deal with this? I think I have this kind of craving. Yeah, first of all, you know, if you're learning about craving, desire, attachment, and this mental longing and strong eagerness and how it causes your own discontentedness, and you're working on this eightfold path with breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity to eliminate your own craving, desire, attachments, then as you're doing that and you're seeing the peacefulness come into the mind, the last thing that you should be interested in doing is adopting other people's craving, desire, attachments which is also described as wants and expectations. If someone else has an expectation of you, then that is only going to lead to your own discontentedness if you adopt that as your own expectation. Someone else can have an expectation of me and they can expect all they want. But if I never adopt that expectation, then I can still remain peaceful because I've never adopted their expectation. But if I internalize their expectation and now it becomes my expectation of myself, that's where I cause my own discontentedness. Now, if you're in a work environment, we're used to saying, you know, my boss expects me to do this. Well, if we start looking at what an expectation is, this mental longing and strong eagerness, then we can kind of recast this and we can start using different language to understand what's really happening is your boss might have a task that they're asking you to perform and they would like you to perform this task. They're interested in seeing you perform this task and they would like it performed in a certain way, right? That's a really healthy way to think about this. But if we think about it as an expectation where there's this mental longing, strong eagerness, That's where when we get the objects of our affections, our wants, we get these pleasant feelings. When we don't get it, then we get these painful feelings. So if we work towards these things as a goal, an objective, an interest, and we start realizing that wants, expectations, this craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness just drives people to that mental longing and strong eagerness, which ultimately causes discontentedness for everybody involved, that is unhealthy and unwholesome. But instead, as a boss, we can say, or as a mom or a dad or a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, we can say to our partners, our children, our parents, our neighbors, our siblings, we can start using language like, I have an interest for you to take care of this, or, you know, son, would you mind taking the trash out today? Or would it be possible for you to pick me up after work? Or could you stop by the store and pick up some food on the way home rather than, you know, I want you to pick up some food on the way home or I want you to take out the trash. We can use words like I need you to do this or I would like for you or could you consider stopping off at the store and picking up some bananas on the way home? You know, we can use this kind of language. Not only do you feel better about it because you're not putting this pressure on somebody, but the person you're talking to feels better about the language you're using. And you'll see that the results are much better because you're not functioning through this craving, desire, attachment. You're not saying, I want this. I expect you to do this. You know, instead, you're using this more gentle language this gentle word choice that now gives people the freedom to kind of breathe and they know that you're not expecting it, you're not wanting it, but you're just asking politely for maybe something to occur. And then realize in your mind, even when you ask somebody to do something, that they may or may not be able to fulfill that for you. And you can be content either way. 
Whereas if you say, I want you to do this, or I expect you to do this, and then they don't do it, that's where the anger arises because you didn't get the objects of your affection. Whereas if you say, would you mind stopping off at the store and picking up some bananas on the way home? And they're like, sure, I'll do that for you. And then they show up and they don't have the bananas. You're not like, where's the bananas? Why didn't you get the bananas? I told you to get the bananas. You can just be like, oh, uh, do you have the bananas? Oh, I forgot. It slipped my mind. Oh, okay, no big deal. We can get them tomorrow. Whereas if we crave those bananas and we absolutely want those bananas today, then that's where the anger arises in the mind because we're causing it ourselves. So when we start changing our language and we start changing the ways we interact with people, then our mind has the ability to now function with a lot more peacefulness, a lot more harmony when we're interacting with people. We don't inherit these expectations from others and we also don't put expectations on others. Because remember, if people are putting expectations on you, it's probably because you're putting expectations on them too. Because this is the natural law of gamma, that whatever you put out is going to come back to you. So the last thing a practitioner should be interested in is inheriting expectations from others and just realizing that you need to have the freedom to make your own choices and even if people are trying to put their expectations on you that doesn't mean you have to adopt them and if they get angry that you didn't meet their expectations they're causing that themselves you didn't cause that thanks teacher let's go to Miranda yes sir um on Facebook Paul Richard had a question Venerable teacher, the reality that we experience at awake state versus the reality that we experience at the sleep state. Some sects of ascetics and even some scientists say the awakening reality and the dream reality both are false and illusion. Only the observer is the truth because it is like we are living inside a simulation. So only the one feeling the simulation is real everything else is fake or illusion or simulated. I don't think this is the case. Would you please shed some light on this with your wisdom? Yes, so this is a common thing that I see sometimes. People say everything we experience is an illusion, right? That everything's an illusion. So usually the first thing I will share with them, I'll say, well, when you cross the street, do you look both ways? And they say, yes. And I was like, well, why? If everything's an illusion, why do you look both ways when you cross the street? That truck's an illusion, so you should be able to just walk out in front of it, right? No, I would get killed. Okay, well, that means it's real, right? Like this truck coming at you is not an illusion. It's a real truck, and if you sit, step out in front of it, you're going to really get killed. Uh, you're going to die. So that's why you look both ways. So even though people say these things, and we hear these things on Facebook and conversation people say these really lofty and fluffy things like the whole world is an illusion we're not really experiencing what we're experiencing okay that's what someone's saying but what we should train to do is always look at the truth we're always independently verifying this so even though somebody says everything's an illusion you have to be able to see the truth do you look both ways before you cross the street yes of course you do why because that truck is real. It's not an illusion. That's why we do that. And those other people, they look both ways when they cross the street too. It's just that they've gotten into their mind somehow where they might feel that it sounds interesting, it sounds lofty, it sounds dreamy to say that everything's an illusion, but it's not. These are real things that are happening. 
And the natural law of gamma shows us that because when we do real things, real things come back to us. And when we go across the street, we look both ways. So this is someone who is saying that the world is an illusion. This is someone who's functioning through belief rather than looking at true reality and doing independent verification of what is true and what is not. But your goal isn't to try to change them or change other people. So if other people say that the world's an illusion, okay, up to them if that's what they would like to think. But for you, you have to be able to see the truth for yourself. And through independent verification, you can see that the world is not an illusion because when you touch this book, it's a real book. Or when you ride a bike and you fall off, that's a real scratch that you've got on your knee and you've got to go to a real hospital and get a real treatment and get a real Band-Aid and stop the real blood that's coming out of the, the body. So there's things like this that are said in the world that I just think of them as kind of lofty and dreamy. They sound interesting, they sound cool, they sound kind of fluffy, but it's not real true reality. The Buddha never said the world is an illusion. This is just something that people kind of say nowadays and not sure where exactly it comes from other than just kind of lofty, fluffy ideas. But what we should always be looking at is independent verification. If it's an illusion, okay, let's see, where is it an illusion? But even the people that say that, like I said, they look both ways. So what they say and what their actions are, are two different things. And this is where you always look at the actions. And that's what people really know to be the truth. And as long as you know the truth, that's what's important. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. On YouTube, Luke writes, how about non-pharmaceutical treatments like therapy, for example? I mean to ask if some Western approaches to mental health like therapy are useful? I'm sure there's some useful treatments both in clinical and pharmaceutical environments as well as therapy and talk therapy. I'm sure there's some useful therapies out there. The thing with talk therapy, at least from my experiences when I went through that, is oftentimes I was being guided to talk about the past and just dwell in the past. And it's just rehashing the past over and over and over and over and over and over again. And this isn't what's going to allow the mind to move on and be in the present moment and let go of all of that stuff. If we continue to dwell in the past through talk therapy, then the mind's just going to stay dwelling there. It's not going to reside in the present moment, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So anybody who's doing talk therapy, what they should be doing, in my view, is helping the person to uh, let go of the past If they need to talk about it, let them talk about it, but then move them into the present moment so that they understand that they're not defined by their past. When we dwell in the past, we tend to dwell in it much like a cesspit or, you know, a dirty bathtub of water because we just dwell in that misery. And that means that once we feel that misery, then we make more miserable decisions in the present moment, which creates more miserable experiences. But by leaving behind the things that we did in the past and the experiences that we had in the past, we can then reside in the present moment and make wiser decisions based on the wisdom that we have now. So if there's therapists out there that are doing that kind of work, that would be more in line with what the Buddha taught and what the mind really needs. Because a lot of people consider the Buddhist teachings to be a religion, and therefore, you know, they don't see this understanding that 
the Buddha wasn't a religious person the way that I define religion. The Buddha's teachings are like the best mental health, self-help program that I've ever seen. In my view, he was the world's foremost expert in psychiatry and psychology and mental health because he understood the mind in such a deep, deep level, but he was able to explain it in such simple terms that the average person could understand it. You don't need to have a PhD to understand how the human mind works in the way that the Buddha describes it. So when we understand how the human mind works and that it's going to have a tendency to hold on to the past, and by holding on to the past, it allows the mind to dwell in those unwholesome feelings, and then it makes the present moment miserable. When we understand that, then we can learn how to cut off the mind dwelling in the past, help it to reside in the present moment and make wise decisions in the present moment. We will still have memories of what happened in the past and things that we did in the past. We'll still have those memories. But what we're doing through this training is we're training the mind to no longer dwell there and to reside in the present moment and just make wise decisions in the present moment, leading to more and more wholesomeness and leaving behind these old decisions that we made and the results that we experienced because of that. And that's the only way that you can get to a better and improved life is by making better, wiser, more wholesome decisions in the present moment. If we allow the mind to keep dwelling in the past, then we're just going to get more of the same. So by moving on beyond that, then that's where we experience the real liberation and the real freedom because now we're free of those unwholesome decisions that we've made in the past. And we're just using our wisdom to now make wise decisions in the present moment and build up our life to be more and more wholesome. Let's go to Miranda. Um, yes, Teacher David. It seems this might be a bit of a follow-up question. Paul Richet asks, Teacher, um, are experiences of dreams created due to delusion of mind, created by incomplete attention? Uh, the way that I view dreams is this is just the mind doing what it does. You know, it's amazingly powerful. It's amazingly creative. Uh, it's, it's just got all this ability to do all kinds of things. It, it's much like a CPU in a computer, right? A CPU, the CPU chip, the central processing unit of a computer has the ability to process and do all kinds of amazing things on a computer. The mind has the same ability in the human body that it has this amazing ability to do all kinds of things. And when we sleep at nighttime or in daytime or whenever we're sleeping and there's dreams that come into the mind, this is the mind doing what it does. It has this amazing ability to do these kind of things. Dreams by themselves aren't necessarily an indication of any particular thing. Sometimes if you're having recurring dreams, it can kind of clue you into some things to understand about the mind. So if you're having like regular dreams about like fear of death, then that tells you that you probably have fear of death and that this is something that you need to address. And sometimes the dream is a way for you to address that, that if you wake up and you're very fearful of death, then during your day, you've got to cut that off and you've got to let it go to be able to reside in the present moment and no longer be afraid of death. Or if you're having recurring dreams of someone close to you dying, for example, and this shakes up your mind when you wake up in the morning, you're shaken up because of someone close to you potentially dying in your dream, 
then that helps you to see that you have an attachment to this person and that's what you really need to work out. Sometimes what people do is they go around and try to determine the meaning of their dreams, which I think is really unhealthy and unbeneficial. Instead, you should just with mindfulness, awareness of mind, observe how the mind is when you wake up from the dream. And if you're shaken up by one of the people close to you having died in your dream, then look through the Buddhist teachings and see that you have attachment to that person still. Because you dreamed about this, you know that it's not true. The person might even be laying in the bed next to you, but yet you're shaken up because of this dream. You think they're going to die. So what the real problem here is, isn't that you had this dream. The real problem is, is that the mind has this attachment to this person. Now you have to train the mind to let that go so that not only in dreams, but also in daily life, there can be more peacefulness. So dreams are going to happen. Sometimes you can go long periods without dreams. And this is where the mind's kind of residing more in the present moment. But then you can also have dreams come back again, too. And rather than trying to find out all the intricate details of what any dream might mean, because people interpret dreams a lot of different ways. Instead, just remember your practice of the Eightfold Path, that you need to have right mindfulness or awareness of mind. And with that awareness of mind, observing what's shaking it up, now when you discover the craving, desire, attachments, then you can eliminate those so that the mind is no longer shaken up. So that then you might still have dreams, but when you wake up, you just realize that it's not reality. You can cut that off, let it go, and just go forward in your day without having the dream affect your day. Whereas if you hold on to this dream for a few minutes or a few hours in your day, it can shake you up and affect the condition of the mind. Because now you've got these feelings and condition of mind that's being affected based on this non-reality of a dream. So when you wake up and you realize you've had a dream and the mind's shaken up, you need to do the same thing that you do in daily life when your mind is shaken up. Cut it off and let it go. And when you cut it off and let it go and you can bring the mind into the present moment with more stability and stableness, now you can just leave that behind, that that was in the past, that was a dream. It's in the past, it's not reality. What do I need to do now? Oh, brush my teeth, take a shower, eat some breakfast, go to work. Whatever it is that you need to do, you just focus on that, realizing that this dream is not reality. Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. On Zoom? Jen thanks you for your guidance and then she writes, I recently noticed an ant on my kitchen counter and without thinking I killed it. I was shocked and felt terrible afterwards that I acted so quickly and thoughtlessly. Since then I have tried to enlarge my loving kindness meditation to include not just people but animals. Would you please offer some guidance about this? Yeah, so this is all actually really good. You know, yes, loving kindness meditation is a way for you to cultivate that. And then, you know, when I talk about in meditation, loving kindness meditation, when I talk about all beings or maybe beings in Asia, Australia, I'm thinking all beings of all five realms. So that's very wise to incorporate that into your loving kindness meditation. But the part that's really great about what you said, Jan, is that not only did you have this this challenge that you killed the the ant but you had that feeling of uh, i think you might have said guilt or shame or something like that 
of course, that's from your own craving, desire, attachment. But this is what the Buddha called moral wrongdoing and moral concern. These are two things that go hand in hand that a practitioner needs to cultivate and needs to develop in order to get to enlightenment. And let me explain what those are. Moral wrongdoing is having the ability to discern what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. So at the time that you killed the the ant, okay, you killed the ant, that's in the past. But what I see there is I see a mind that knew immediately after this that that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That was unwholesome. I shouldn't have killed this being. So you have moral wrongdoing in this situation. You can discern, you have wise decision-making that you knew that that was an unwholesome action. You still did the action, but that's in the past. But at least now you know that it's something you would prefer not to do because you have this moral wrongdoing of being able to discern that it's unwholesome. And then this moral concern is having the concern or the wherewithal, the interest, the goal to improve your conduct so that you no longer are doing unwholesome things. So with moral wrongdoing, the ability to discern wholesome from unwholesome and having this moral concern that you now have the interest and the goal and the objective to improve your conduct, now you can actually make steps to improve it. Where when we were off this path and we didn't have necessarily moral wrongdoing and moral concern, we were just indifferent. We were just going around not necessarily knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome because we didn't understand the natural law of gamma. And this is where I say we just knock down trees and burn up the forest um, because we don't have moral wrongdoing. And we probably don't even have moral concern at different times in our life. We don't care. We're just out for our own selfish desires. We're just in life for our own selfish desires. So without moral wrongdoing and moral concern, we just walk through the forest, knocking down trees, burning up the forest. But now once we get on this path, we start having moral wrongdoing. We start having moral concern, but yet the mind can't quite practice it the way that we would like to. So as the mind transitions like this, you're going to have situations where you do kill an ant or a mosquito or something. You're like, what did I just do? I thought I'm on the path to enlightenment and I'm trying to cultivate this loving kindness and compassion, but I just destroyed this cockroach right? And this is where you just take a moment, you just kind of grasp the gravity of what you did, and you make goals and objectives to improve this situation. So what I hear there is a mind that's in transition, that even though your action was kind of reverting to that killing, because that's what you're kind of used to, immediately after that, the wisdom kicked in, and you started having this moral wrongdoing and this moral concern. One of the things that I'll share on this topic as well is that, you know, we have this certain way of doing things in our life. We have this certain path where we might be aggressive or hostile or in this situation, we're kind of used to that reaction of just kill the ant because that's what we've been taught. And we have this well-worn path that we always kind of do that because that's what our mind has kind of been wired to do. What the path to enlightenment is about is going through the struggle and difficulty of getting out your machete and knocking down the bushes and the vines and making this new path. And it's quite a struggle and it's quite difficult sometimes. But over time, when you walk down this new path and you use this machete enough to clear out this new path, that path gets really worn well and you start making new decisions. And this old path of killing the ant 
the vines and the bushes overgrow and you don't no longer walk down that path. So what you need to do is just kind of slow down next time you see the ant, maybe use a piece of paper, a napkin or what have you, or just your, your breath and just kind of, you know, blow it to wherever it needs to go and then set it outside or whatever you're going to do with it so that it can be on its merry way. And then as you do this, that's creating that new path. That's knocking down the bushes and the vines, creating that new path. And now making that decision three, four, five, eight, ten times, that path gets really warped really well. And then the mind's going to make that decision more and more frequently. And this old path gets overgrown and you don't walk down that path anymore. And we do that on a number of decisions, not just with killing insects, but with argumentative speech and hostility and aggression and all the different cravings that we have in the mind. Our mind is just used to going down this well-worn path of getting our cravings fulfilled. And we just keep walking down that path because it's so easy, it's so easy, it's so well-worn that it's just easy for us to do that. But what we're doing with this path to enlightenment is we're over here going through that struggle, going through the difficulty of making this new path for ourselves. And as we do, that gets easier and easier to travel because we're used to it now. And now all those old ways of being get overgrown and we no longer walk down that path. So that's great that you see that, that you would like to improve that. That's moral wrongdoing that you see the wholesome and unwholesome. And then now you have the moral concern that you have this genuine interest in improving it. So that's really helpful. Just slow down next time and choose to do something different. And what that something different is, is up to you. You'll have to decide in the moment because each individual situation is different. But that killing is something that you're choosing to no longer do and that will help you to practice loving kindness in all situations with all beings on zoom a question from luke that is related to jan's question what should we do about mosquitoes in our room yeah so what i like to do is i like to be preventative with these kind of things is that there's ways to kind of prevent these things so Uh, Luke lives in Thailand. He lives right down the street from me. And here in Thailand, you know, we live with insects and animals. Other countries are this way too, where like in America, if you had ants or insects or things in your house, it was like, ah, they, they shouldn't be in here. Like there should never be any insects in your house. But in Thailand, you kind of live and share your house with other beings, squirrels, there's geckos uh, in your house. There's Uh, ants that appear every so often you'll have a you know a bunch of ants that come up uh, so what i do is i try to find the best way to take care of these things with the geckos you can't get rid of them they're going to be around you know uh, they're always going to be around here in thailand with ants when i see those i sweep them up with a broom and just kind of put them outside uh, sometimes if there's uh, so many of them i might even use a vacuum to kind of get them out uh, with mosquitoes We just kind of keep things kind of closed up. And if we're going out at night when the mosquitoes are out, we just try to, you know, not allow them to come into the house. But if they come into the house, you know, there's there's probably a mosquito or two or three or four somewhere floating around in our house. And we just let it be. If there's one in the room when I'm getting ready to go to sleep, you know, I, I will try to, you know, let it go or let it leave. But if you try to aggressively get rid of these things, that aggression that you put out, they'll end up coming back and bothering you. So 
I tend to just kind of ignore mosquitoes because I don't have a, a, a large amount of them around. But if there's just one or two here, I just kind of ignore them. If they keep coming around me frequently, I will you know, open a window and try to allow them to leave on their own accord. Uh, I might use a, a piece of paper to kind of help them move on. But doing that very gently uh, is what I usually do. Hey, thanks, Tisha. That's all for today. All right. Well, thank you all for your questions. Thank you all for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing. This Sunday in the group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 23, which is symbolism in the teachings, reminders through imagery, where we're going to be looking at the different images that were used during the lifetime of the Buddha to remind people about the teachings, because a lot of those images are still around today. You'll find them in temples and artwork and different places. And by learning those, it can be really fun as you look at artwork, as you look at temples and architecture, you can kind of discern and understand the teachings through these symbols. And it can be a really nice, a fun way to understand the teachings and kind of glean more understanding of the teachings. And it can be nice little reminders for you uh, when you're looking at different things and you see different imagery. And then next week on Wednesday, I'm going to be doing that refresh of the breathing mindfulness meditation, kind of going through some important teachings related to that, just to kind of refresh your memory since it's been a while since I taught that content. And then we'll also do breathing mindfulness meditation together as a class. And then I'm going to do the same thing for loving kindness meditation two weeks from now. So thank you all for coming to class. Thank you all for continuing to learn and practice because as you improve the condition of your mind, it's only helping you, helping those close to you in all of humanity. So thank you very much. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.